Earth 2, a world much like our own, yet slightly different. There, young and old have joined forces to battle evil, the newest heroes joining the champions of the Golden Age, presenting Tales of the Justice Society of America. everybody, welcome back to Tales of the Justice Society of America. My name is Michael Bailey. And I'm Scott Gardner. And we're here for the first time to talk about the book we actually got together to talk about in the first place, but that didn't happen last episode, <laughs> because that's just, you know, we're very organic podcasters. We let the podcast decide where things are going to go. So, <laughs> so uh, Scott and I had talked about it before. And um, I'm kind of springing it on him right now, but is there any big JSA news recently that you've heard about that you wanted to kind of, like, mention at least? Because, you know, we're we're, kind of keeping our heads in the past, but I thought, you know, we thought it might be fun every once in a while to just kind of, at the beginning of the show, mention what's going on or if there's any big kind of news for the team in in the world of comic books or TV. The only thing I can think of is that, uh, you know, the, the current justice league, uh, excuse me, justice society book is, uh, is getting a spinoff. Um, there's actually going to be two of them, which kind of blew my mind when I found this out because I was looking at it going, wow, I had always kind of had the impression that Justice Society, as it exists right now, is one of those books that, you know, might not be struggling, but wasn't exactly knocking it out of the park stales-wise either. So the fact that it was getting a, a second title really kind of surprised me. But uh, I, uh, I I got it um, when it was solicited. I get my comics through uh, Heroes Corner, and they had a, a healthy discount on that first issue. So I went ahead and ordered it, but I probably won't get it on a regular basis because I believe the price points kind of, uh, will be three ninety nine, and uh, and I'm just not on board with the three ninety nine price tag. But uh, do you do you know what the t- what the title of that book is? I can't remember what the title. I think is. it's called JSA All Stars. Yeah, I think you're right. I think yeah, you're right because uh, Bill Willingham and Matthew Sturgis have been writing the main title for the past, uh, I believe, four months now. Mm-hmm. As, at, at the time of this recording. And Bill Willingham is going to keep on with Justice Society of America, and Matthew Sturgis is going to break off and do JSA All-Stars. And in reading about the concept, I almost want to call it Justice Society Task Force. Hmm. uh, Because uh, that book, Justice League Task Force, was originally going to be kind of a rotating uh, creator book, just telling stories uh, about the Justice League of America. But eventually, when the book got good is when Christopher Priest took it over and it became a Martian Manhunter training the next generation right. of heroes book. Right, yeah, that was a good book, too. Uh, very good book. And it doesn't seem like it's going to have that same vibe here because it seems like Magog and Stargirl are the leaders of this team. Uh, and, and the lineup is kind of wonky, too. It's got... Uh, the all the younger members of the Justice Society, basically, uh, the Wildcat Junior, as Matthew Sturgis called him. 
Uh, a character I've actually grown to like. Um, the, the one thing about the title that I do like, uh, about them splitting the titles at least, is that the team was getting too large. Right. I mean, uh, as much as I love the book and as much as I loved what Jeff Johns was doing, I think the size of that team kind of hurt that whole GOG storyline, which went on forever. Um, but it looks like uh, Power Girl, uh, I keep forgetting what Commander Steel is called nowadays. Citizen? Is it Citizen? Citizen Steel. Hour Man. Uh, looks like the God, what, Cyclone, Stargirl, Damage, the Judo Master, and that Shimura guy. Mm. Uh, who, you, you, at the time of this recording, you haven't read any of their run yet, have you? No, no, I have not. No, I'm uh, I'm hoping to read it later today, as a matter of fact, but no, I have not yet had a chance after, to read it. After you read that, I'll tell you why I'm annoyed that they announced that this guy's going to be on the team. But but in any case, you know, it's kind of interesting. Eh. I mean, I'm going to check it out because it's a Justice Society book. I try to support that team because it's gotten canceled so many times. Right. Uh, you know... I'll buy it. I get a discount at my comic shop, whatever. Uh, I guess we also have the fact that Stargirl, Hawkman, and Dr. Fate are all going to be on now a two-part episode of Smallville, hmm. which um, Jeff Johns, uh, has, I think, has written both parts of it. So we'll see how that goes. The casting has been has been pretty decent. I don't recognize the people because I don't watch a lot of television. <laughs> But apparently they're not only going to have those three characters, but they're bringing back Martian Manhunter and some of the other Justice League characters. So uh, it's nice that everybody's going to have a costume except Superman, <laughs> I guess it, it is what I can say. It's really great that Hawkman's going to have a costume and Dr. Fate's going to have a costume, but the one guy on the show that needs a uh, freaking costume doesn't have one. But that'll be – that's trying to stay positive about Smallville. I really am. That just annoys me that he's still not in costume now, but – uh, I guess the first thing we can do is uh, our previously promised character profile. Uh, you want to take the leads on that, Scott? Sure. Um, well, this issue... Um, what's that? <laughs> I said, sorry, I popped another thing on you. I apologize. Well, I, I'm a bad co-host. I, I'm trying to think of exactly what to say about this. This is a tricky one to lead off with, with Power Girl, because this book that we're about to review, All-Star Comics number 58 is her first appearance. So in the uh, in the interest of not spoiling ahead, oh, it, it's kind of tricky what can be said about her. Um, she does reveal in this issue that she is Superman's cousin. There's even an editor's note saying that, you know, her existence has been kept secret longer on Earth 2 than Superman kept Supergirl's existence a secret on Earth 1. Beyond that, not a whole lot is revealed about her. You know, she's obviously from Krypton and that sort of thing, but, uh, you know, all she really says about herself is that it's a long story. We will eventually get that story, and we will learn that uh, her origin is actually, even though she's... This is what I actually always liked about Power Girl, is that she's so much more than just the Earth 2 Supergirl. There's really yes. very little resemblance between the two characters. Um, I like to think of it a lot as, uh, you know, if you ever saw the Justice League Unlimited episodes that had Supergirl and the clone character of her, they were so 
dissimilar. Galatea. Galatea, thank you. I could not think of her name. And Galatea actually reminded me an awful lot of Power Girl. I, I was hoping... Well, she had the outfit minus the cape. Right. So. Yeah, I was, I was hoping for the longest time that eventually that character was going to mutate into Power Girl on that show. And I liked her because she was... You know, she was obviously cut from the same basic origin and the same material as Supergirl... But she was more mature. She was more sure of herself. She seemed more powerful in certain aspects. And that's kind of where Super, uh, Power Girl is when we meet her in this, is that, you know, sure, she's Superman's cousin, um, you know, the Earth 2 Superman's uh, cousin, just like Supergirl is the Earth 1 Superman's cousin. But uh, that's about where the resemblance ends. You know, their, their body types are very different. Their hairstyles, their uh, their attitudes. You know, Power Girl, right from the get-go, you get the feeling that, you know, she's she's very much in charge. She's very sure of herself. She's definitely got the, you know, the 70s women's lib thing all working for her. She She's not a... Uh, a shrinking violet or or anything like that. She's uh, she's in there playing with the big boys, right yeah. from the get go. And, yeah, she and doesn't I like take that. any crap from Wildcat either at all. No, you know the the one thing that 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 gets me about that editor's note that that you mentioned. It says obviously on Earth Two, Superman has kept the Power Girl's existence uh, secret longer than he did on Earth One. What I'm at, well, my question about that is, are we? saying then that Power Girl has been, relatively speaking, around as long as Supergirl? Because Supergirl came in in the 50s. So does that mean Power Girl was there like in the 40s and he just kept her existence secret? (laughs) I I just think that's a very misleading thing. Yes. Is that what it... I'm not trying to edit Jerry Conway, so don't take it like that, please. But basically a better way to have said it would have been, obviously she landed later than Supergirl did in this Superman's career. Uh, and not to give too much away, that plays into the the character dynamics between the two of them. And when we get to that, I got a rant. But not right now, because we're not there. But yeah, the, the one thing about Power Girl, though, is that she does not have a symbol. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and, and there's a real-world reason about that, is because they, Wally Wood and Rick Estrada, the artist, uh, like to draw busty women. That's cool. I like boobs. <laughs> it's really interesting, though, in the art to see the the lack, except in like one or two panels, of cleavage lines. Yes, I was just noticing that, actually. <laughs> the- <laughs> I probably linger over these images much more than I than I should for, you know, than is probably healthy for my age. But For line drawings? Well, that's what cosplayers are for, sir. You can... Uh- <laughs> you can linger over those photos when you do a Google search of Power Girl all day long. Not that I've ever done that. <laughs> so let's get right into All-Star Comics, number 58. Uh, it has a cover date. Well, the cover says February, but the inside information says January, February 1976, because All-Star Comics was a bi-monthly book. Mm-hmm. Uh, this one, according to... Mike's Amazing World of DC Comics, and if this is a site you have not checked out yet, go. Like, while you're listening to this, because you can do two things at once, you're a, you know, we have smart listeners. Um, it's an amazing resource for DC Comics. 
according to that site, this was released on October 9th, 1975. Get ready for a punch to the wallet, uh, Scott. Cover date was 25 cents. Oh, yeah, that does hurt, doesn't it? <laughs> uh, it has a cover by Mike Grell, as we mentioned last uh, last time out. Let me ask you this, because this happens mm-hmm. every time I look at this cover. There is a shadow over the forms of Dr. Fate and the Flash. Every time I see that, I think something has marred my cover until I remember that it's a shadow. Have you it does. Heard? It looks like an oil stain or something. Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, who missed... Oh, wait, that's part of it. Okay. Jerry Conway is listed as writer and editor, because this was a time period in comics when you had that. And I think we've returned to that, but that's 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 a topic for another time. Um, <laughs> Rick Estrada and Wally Wood are the artists, and we have our Justice Society roll call with Flash, Hawkman, Dr. Midnight, Wildcat, Dr. Fate... Green Lantern, Star Spangled Kid, Robin, and Power Girl. We open with Flash, Dr. Midnight, Wildcat, Dr. Fate, Green Lantern, and Hawkman <laughs> at Justice Society headquarters with Dr. Midnight informing the group that within 24 hours, the world will end and that he's not sure they can stop it. Apparently, the private communicator received a direct communication the previous day telling them that a disaster would strike Seattle, Washington, Cape Town in South Africa, and Peking in the Republic of China. As far-fetched as the concept is, the team agrees to split into groups and investigate the matter. That was supposed to be sarcastic. (laughs) We cut to the star-spangled kid who just happens to be in Seattle and is winging around the city with the aid of Starman's cosmic rod, which was loaned to the kid since Starman is laid up with a broken leg. Though you would think that somebody who has something that can defy gravity can probably get around that, but, you know, whatever. He stumbles upon a bank robbery and makes short work of the thieves, but afterwards, the kid is kind of depressed since he has that whole man-out-of-time thing going on as he has just returned from being displaced in the time uh, stream uh, with the help of the Justice League of America and the Justice Society. Suddenly, an earthquake rocks the city, and the kid springs into action. Dr. Midnight and Hawkman arrive on the scene, but hang back, uh, because Dr. Midnight, breaking doctor-patient confidentiality all over the place, explains that the Star-Spangled Kid is having some self-worth issues, so they should just wait and help out only if necessary so he can feel a little better about himself. Because there's nothing like patronizing superheroes. Yeah, that's a good thing to do when millions of lives are at stake, too. (laughs) Yeah, no doubt. Meanwhile, in a space station in orbit around the equator, the villain known as Brainwave, who looks goofy as hell. He's uh, got bug eyes big time. Yeah. <laughs> Watches as the as his plan unfolds before him. He then rants about how he was in solitary confinement for years, and that made him feel bad. And he went a little crazy and became fixated on beauty. And he was the one that sent the message to the Justice Society computer and wonders if they know why he chose those particular cities. In Cape Town, South Africa, Dick Grayson is at a social event when an explosion rocks the city, which is followed by a wave of noxious gas that spreads across the city. Dick Grayson races back to his hotel room, somehow not being overcome by the gas, and rushes into action as Robin. Green Lantern and Dr. Fate arrive and immediately go to work. Lantern plugs up the gas leak, and they come across the unconscious form of Robin, who they help bring bring around and... No sooner do they help Robin to his feet than the cork pops on the crater once more, 
and gas fills the air, knocking out Fate and Lantern. In China, Flash and Wildcat arrive just in time to see an impromptu volcanic eruption. The Flash races into action, and Wildcat joins him after bike-jacking some hapless uh, passerby. <laughs> he steals that dude's bike. <laughs> and all the guy says is like a question mark. I'd be like, hey, ass. <laughs> That's my bike. Because you know it's not coming back in one piece. Uh, not if Jay- a superhero takes it, it's <laughs> not. Jay digs a ditch for the lava to pour into, and suddenly a woman in white and red caps off the volcano with... Well, it looks like she does it with Silly Putty, but we'll get to that in a minute. And then joins Flash and Wildcat on the ground. She introduces herself as Power Girl, and after some exposition about her being Superman's cousin, the Chinese army attacks. The heroes make quick quick work of the army, and Power Girl quickly explains that the disasters are a diversion meant to weaken the Justice Society. She brings them up to speed on what the others are up to, and they rush off to join them. Wildcat grouses that the JSA doesn't need help, and Power Girl suggests that they not think of themselves as the JSA, but as a super squad. She then reveals that the ultimate villain is Brainwave. Dun, dun, dun. I hate the name of the super squad, by the way. Yeah, I do too. I'm glad it didn't stick around for <laughs> yeah. very long. Although I love the cover on this, you know, with, yeah. with it saying super squad and all that. I, I, I have since I was a kid that, yeah, I, that is kind of a dumb name, and I'm glad it didn't stick around. And uh, I have to say, my, my first note right off the bat, just to tell you where my mind goes sometimes, I guess, is that as much as I absolutely adore this this Mike Grell cover, this is one of my absolute favorite comic book covers of all time. Um, Power Girl's boobs are real small on that cover compared to how she looks inside. I just had to point that out. She's more of a C cup, and inside she's obviously a double D. There you go. That's it exactly. So uh, let me see how you want to handle the notes on this particular uh, issue. Um, I think it's kind of goofy that they got the message the day before and just now decided to call a meeting about it. Okay, yeah, let's tackle that because I have a problem with their their kind of uh, less than expedient, holy shit, let's take care of this. We only have 24 hours before the frickin' world ends attitude. (laughs) Okay, they decide to hold a vote about whether or not – I mean, really – you're really going to stand around and have a vote on whether or not to save the friggin' planet? Okay, and you're really going to stand around and have this vote when there's less than 24 hours left to save this planet? Uh, that really stuck in my craw right off the bat. And it's funny because, uh, who is it? Uh, Dr. Midnight, after they hold the vote, and the vote is, uh, is uh, approved and seconded by The Flash, Dr. Midnight, and I'm reading this with a very snarky tone of voice, so maybe, maybe this is my fault, but I'm, I'm reading this line as he's going, I suppose there's no vo- and no point in calling for a vote. So it's really funny that, that he actually sounds, in my mind anyway, like he's bent out of shape because he didn't get to throw in there whether or not he wanted to go save the planet. I, just, I was floored by that. I was like... Dude, is this not what you're there for? You know, is this not your job by default? But uh, I was, understand they, why they did it. I mean, they wanted to kind of have that feeling of the old Justice Society stories where they have a meeting at the beginning of it. But you're right. You know, it's just like, should we go help this old man who lost his cat up the tree? Eh, I don't know. I'll, I, I guess so. I mean, but 
But yeah, the whole the Earth is about to end. That seems like you know you, you should get some post haste action going on that shit. But just the, I mean, just that line. Where is that line? We received the message yesterday, Wildcat. <laughs> wait a second. Wait a second. Wait a second. You mean if we had this meeting yesterday, it would have been in forty-eight hours the Earth is going to be destroyed? I would love it if they realized that you know they just opened their email and realized they had like thirty <laughs> seconds left to save the world. <laughs> um, this, in, this ends up being a pamphlet of the return of Justice Society. I uh, I'm really not all that hot on the art in this issue. Uh, it's not bad. I, I've seen I've seen worse, uh, especially with I, I'm kind of surprised because Wally Wood is usually such a strong artist, but. Um, Right off the bat, one of my first pit- nitpicks is, God, I hate Hawkman's mask. I yeah. hate Hawkman's mask. Yeah, I never liked that either. See, I'm not the biggest Hawkman fan in the world to begin with. And I think part of that prejudice, that long-standing prejudice that I had, and I will say had past tense because I've since come around about Hawkman, but I think one of the reasons is owing back to some of the earliest memories I had as a kid of Hawkman were from books like this, where he was just less than impressive. He was basically like Angel from the X-Men. Now, as awesome as I think Angel's outfit is, that's about the most impressive thing about that character. Other than that, he's a dude with wings that flies around. whoop de shit <laughs> That's one of Superman's 40 different superpowers, you know? So, you know. And he doesn't need wings. Yeah. That can somehow but, uh, be hidden in his jacket like that would ever freaking work. And Wildcat, it looks like it looks like he got his costume out of the laundry and put it on <laughs> before he got there because his ears are kind of flopped. It looks like a freaking jester's mask mm-hmm. is what it looks like. And you know what? We're, we're being kind of snarky right here at the beginning. That does not diminish my love for the story. Oh, but, yeah. But, man, I mean, come on. Really? Oh, yeah, yeah, you gotta you gotta poke fun when, when, when fun is, is to be poked. Well, for example, you mentioned about the art. Now, I'm not the biggest uh, Wally Wood fan. I know he's a classic artist. I, you know, again, respect the guy. Just not that big of a fan, but uh, Rick Estrada, you know, um, yeah, he's not all that impressive in this, but, I mean, you know, he, he went on to, a, you know, to, to some pretty huge successes, Poncherello on chips. So you know, <laughs> you got to give him kudos there. Yeah, there you go. Um, you can tell that Jerry Conway came from Marvel and wrote this book because we have a big superhero fight where Star Spangled Kid goes into action, and it's a pretty impressive scene. And I kind of like the fact that they're mentioning Starman, even though he's not in the book. Yes, by giving him the the cosmic rod. Originally called the Gravity Rod. That's Mike's a dork moment uh, for this, the first one for this episode. Um, oh, just wait, my moment's coming. But as soon as he's done, he like sits down on the curb and like it's like he's he's twirling trash on the ground with the with the cosmic rod. Oh, I'm so it's like he's freaking Eeyore all of a sudden, and the straights are all looking at him like, who's that superhero just hanging out on the curb there? You know. It's really fun. I love that panel where they're looking at him like, uh, you know. Dude? I don't- <laughs> you okay? Do you need a quarter, Mr. Superhero? <laughs> you almost want like a hippie to come along, man. Like, get a job. <laughs> <laughs> Baby killer. No. But no, I like I like that too. I'm glad you mentioned that because that was something that, that occurred to me was his mentioning Starman right out the gate. 
I really, really liked that because that, of course, lends back into Star, uh, uh, Star Spangled Kid much, much, much later oh, yeah. in, in history being considered part of the Starman legacy, you know, much later when we would meet, um, you know, the later Starman legacy characters. And I like that. It all it all ties back in very nicely because this he's always been, you know, as, as I've told you before, I have a great fondness and, a, and somehow always attach myself to these these B characters, you know, these these sort of lesser known characters. And Star Spangled Kid is one of them. I don't know what it is about this character. Maybe it simply is that he's Star Spangled. He he kind of looks. You know, he's got the Captain America thing going. He looks like our flag, and I have an attachment to you know to patriotic characters like that. But there's something about the Star Spangled Kid I always really liked. So I, you know, I was really glad that that he was in this, and uh, you know, the whole thing he's got going on with uh, with the Man Out of Time sequence, and then feeling like he's out of touch with the modern world. And up, I know exactly how you're feeling, dude. <laughs> <laughs> well, also, um, he's one of the few characters that was a kid hero with a, an adult sidekick. Yeah. And you don't see Stripesy in this, um, probably because he's off, like, trying to find some dignity and some self-respect. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm, I'm just kidding on that one. But, no, it, it's just, you know, it, it, it not only serves to connect Starman into the story, like, hey, if you like Starman, he's still out there, but also it's kind of like for people just picking this up like it was their first uh, comic book ever, they're going to know, okay, he's a Star Spangled Kid. At one point, he was lost in time. He had the sidekick that's no longer with him, and this is why he's depressed. Mm-hmm. And while it's kind of melodramatic, it's also very effective on a storytelling level. Right. Uh, I, you know, sometimes expositional dialogue can be, or, or thought balloons or whatever, can be really clunky, and here it's it's very smooth. He's like... You know, he's smiling when he's fighting the villains, and you get that he's happy, but then he just sits down. It's like, I'm lonely. Yeah, you know? you've got his whole motivation, his whole story in, in just a few panels, and that, to me, is when comics work the best, is, is you know, it doesn't have to be overlong or overwrought, but you get the essentials. You get what you need to instantly identify with that character when, you know, when it's done well. Yeah, and in and, and the first instance of me sounding like an old man yelling at kids to get off my lawn, uh, if this was done today, there'd be 16 silent pages of him sitting in a diner reading the newspaper. <laughs> I, I, I mean, seriously, it's just and, and it, like like him reading the newspaper and seeing the date and like a panel focusing on the date and then him looking at the rod and like doing something with the rod. It's just like, could, could you get back to the story? Thank you. Because right away, there's another disaster to avert. I have a feeling that, that in the course of doing this show, we're going to have a lot of uh, of comparisons between the way comics used to be when they were written like this and the way they are today. And I, I don't know that that's necessarily a bad thing. <laughs> I think comics today could learn a lot of lessons from comics like this from back in the day, you know, especially with the with editor's notes, for God's sakes. I love editor's notes. I love when mm-hmm. they tell you, you know, this character is talking about this event that happened in this book. Go find it, you know, if you're interested. I wish they did that kind of stuff today. I, well, I, I, I Nothing drives me more crazy than when I read 
you know, some character make a, a comment about some interesting event, and then I have no no clue where I can go find that story. So, yeah, love that. Well, we have the internet, and that makes everything different. I don't want to have to use the internet. I am being sarcastic. <laughs> All right, and I have a, a technical question that you might be able to answer here, Mr. Uh, nerdy Technical Guy. Okay. Why in the hell isn't uh, Green Lantern's ring saving him from this gas? Does it not function like Hal Jordan's ring and, and keep him in like a little bubble of protection? Yeah. Well, there's an explanation for that um, that's revealed next issue. Ah, okay. So I can spoil it. No, don't spoil it. We'll, we'll, we'll get there. Okay, okay that, that's the we'll thing. We'll get there. Uh, I was just curious about that. Well, also, you noticed that, uh, or you had, you had made note of Robin not being overcome by the gas and changing into his Robin outfit and then running out. But then very shortly later, Green Lantern and Dr. Fate do find him passed out in the middle of the street. So, <laughs> although, you know, he, he was able to make his dynamic change and jump out the window, he, he still didn't amount to much because the gas eventually overcame him anyway. I, I, I don't know why, but I found that really funny in, a, in kind of a sadistic way, I guess. I also like the fact that they kind of gloss over the political climate of South Africa in the 70s and 80s in the conversation he has at the beginning. Well, they don't ever explain why he's there either. I mean, at this time, Dick Grayson was, uh, he was like ambassador or something, wasn't he? So, yeah, yeah, he was a a lawyer and a diplomat. Yeah. So, you know, obviously, and, you know, and, and we mentioned last episode how it's great to see, you know, one of the great things about Earth 2 is that, you get to see characters grow up and all that. I mean, you got to think of the time that he probably had to put in going to college and then going to law school, mm-hmm. probably having to start a firm and probably then using political connections through his his mentor to get into public service. It's really neat to see that in costume and out, Dick Grayson is serving the public good in some form or another. Right. And I think that that speaks volumes for, you know, even as an adult, one, he's still Robin. And I have nothing against Nightwing, so that that that's not like saying, well, you should be Robin all the time, uh, because you know I'm of the opinion that Tim Drake should be Robin, but he's not, so screw you, DC. Um, and <laughs> two, he's you know he has taken what he learned from his father, basically, and like I'm going I'm going to apply this on both sides of my life. It's like public service is so ingrained in his in his being he can't do anything else well you know we'll see that with uh with bruce you know with his father figure later on that that this earth's version of of bruce has that same sense you know about him as well that even when he's not out you know beating the hell out of criminals as batman he's serving his community as well and you know we'll learn about that later on i thought i always thought that was a very interesting take with that character that he doesn't always, you know, he, he eventually matures in his Bruce Wayne identity to a point where he's no longer content to just be a frivolous playboy. He actually does contribute something back to society. I always liked that. I always I always looked at that character, that version of Batman, as, as somehow a little more, um, you know, he, he, he had done something with his Bruce Wayne life. Yeah, it's Beyond not just, it's, just Batman, it's not just a beard, basically, right? So that he can, uh, so that he can function better as the dark and brooding creature of the night that goes and 
uh, you know, and, and kicks all the butt. I mean, the Batman animated series kind of tried to cross that line a few times. I mean, there was a few episodes where people accused him of being, you know, a fop and a, you know, the, just like a useless playboy. But you know, there was always something going on with the, you know, with the Wayne Enterprises and Wayne Tech, and you know, he was involved in it. He got up in the day, put on right. a suit, and went to work after beating criminal senseless at night. <laughs> Whereas I don't get that. I didn't get that sense for the longest time of, of reading Batman stories. I liked, don't get me wrong, but that Bruce Wayne was anything more to him than a mask. And that Batman was the real character. Yeah. I've never of- been completely comfortable with that interpretation of that character, because to me, while he's out there as Batman avenging his parents, if he's not also nurturing the the Bruce Wayne half of his identity, that doesn't seem to me like he's honoring his parents. You know, especially if he's allowing, you know, if he's basically just existing uh, off the the family money and that sort of thing, but he's not doing anything to perpetuate, you know, the the family name or whatever. Yeah, I, I don't know if you see where I'm going with that. No, I but- see exactly where you're going. With that, you know, it's basically he is letting the reputation of the Wayne family slide. Exactly. Yeah. Which is not something. The more I think about Batman as a character, is the more something he wouldn't do. Right. You know, he 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 shouldn't do that. It's why eventually Bruce Wayne needs to get married. Because you know, as as much as they like to play him being assumed by his dark alter ego. You know, eventually, I mean, they even kind of bring it up in uh, in Dark Knight Returns. Alfred makes that snarky remark. It's just like, you know, you may want to lay off the sauce because the Wayne family heirs may want something in their wine settle if there is ever a Wayne family heir. Right. <laughs> and that, I think, was where the idea came that Bruce Wayne would just be totally consumed with this. It's like Frank Miller ruined a lot for Batman as much as he did a lot for Batman, if that makes any sense. <laughs> well, I agree with you totally, but we're talking about yeah, Batman, and he's not like, even in this issue. So That's DC um, Comics. Oh, yeah. Well, no, I mean, it all ties back into, uh, into this Robin thing, too. Now, I got a big kick. I, I wonder – I don't remember ever seeing this before, which – you know that's not saying much, but I'm just wondering if this was a new trick or an old trick reused or what. But on page uh, 13, the first panel, now it looks to me as if Wildcat is being drawn along with the Flash in their adventure. Basically, yes. he's floating in the Flash's wake mm-hmm. as he runs. Now, th- is this a power that that Flash had had prior to this? Do you know? I am not as familiar with the Golden Age Flash as I would like to be. Uh, mm-hmm. I'm hoping at some point that they start doing a Chronicles line with that him. Would, that would be very cool. Uh, it's kind of disappointing that the Chronicles line for the Flash right now is the Barry Allen stuff, which is being reprinted a thousand times. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas the only way you can really read Golden Age Flash stories is in the archives which even on eBay now are still expensive. But you know what? It's one of those things that makes sense, but I feel really bad for Wildcat here. Because <laughs> at the top of that panel on page 13, he's just got his arms up. He, he just got to know that he's uncomfortable. <laughs> like, like, like it's beneath him somewhat. Yeah. Which is why the first chance he gets, he punches some poor guy and steals his moped. 
<laughs> and, and are you really going to catch the Flash with that? Seriously, Ted, think about it. Well, he even says, you know, by the time he gets there, you know, the the job is done. He he says something about, you know, thanks for leaving me behind or something like that. It's really funny. Um, Great, I'll just borrow something from one of our Chinese (laughs) brothers. You don't mind, do you, fella? Thanks, I didn't think so. Well, I also wondered, is this why the Chinese army comes in and attacks everybody at the end of this? I never understood that. Why are they being attacked? Is it because they stole this guy's bike? Um, Well... On a practical level, they're Americans in the People's Republic of China. But they just saved their whole country. doesn't matter. At that point, it was illegal for Americans to be in the country, if I'm Uh, remembering correctly. Yeah, I think you're right. Um, What a bunch of ungrateful bastards. Turning back the the, the clock just a little bit, I am kind of disturbed that Dr. Midnight mentions that he had a private communication in the in the capacity of being Star Spangled Kid's doctor and immediately rats him out to Hawkman. <laughs> what is the exact line? I hate it. It's like, we should do nothing. From the Hawkman says, from the look of, this is on page seven for those following along at home. From the look of things, we, he could use some help. We should do nothing, my friend. Before he left for the coast, the kid and I had quite a talk. It was between doctor and patient, and ordinarily I wouldn't reveal what he said, yet this is important, especially important since he possesses the power of the cosmic rod. The kid needs to regain his confidence, Hawkman, on more than just an everyday level. Offering our help now would destroy what self-reliance he has. So for the 15 people he misses savings, their deaths are well worth it, because he's going to feel better about himself. You jackass. (laughs) Well, couldn't he have just as easily explained all that by saying, you know, something tells me maybe we should just hang back and let the kid work and and see how it goes. You know, instead he violates doctor patient uh, confidentiality. It just, I don't know, it just seems wrong to me. I watch a lot. Now, I'm not a lawyer, but I watch a crap load of Law and Order. Mm -hmm. And I know that's something you don't do because that's something they argue about on that show all the time. So. Uh, Brainwave is very different looking from his past um, appearances. You know, usually he is a short, bald man with glasses who looks like uh, he'd have to, you know, the only time he ever saw a nipple up close is when he paid a cover charge. But (laughs) here he is young and vital and jumping ahead just a little bit. This costume is reused down the line to much better effect. And not having the bug-eyed look. It looks like his mask is on too tight. Well, well, the... the see, it's so hard sometimes to talk about this stuff and not spoil ahead. But I've got to ask, is, isn't uh, this uniform used by... It's like his son or something, right? Yes, like Brainwave Juniors? Okay. Brainwave Junior. Because when we first saw this, in the, in the book itself, I, I think it's in text, makes some reference to the fact that he doesn't look the same. That's who I thought this was, was the junior brainwave. And uh, and then later on it's revealed that it is actually the same little tiny guy. So I was a little bit confused by that. I, I was trying to remember exactly, because brainwave, uh, I'll just be honest, was never one of my favorite characters anyway, even when he eventually was with uh, Infinity Inc. and all that. So I was trying to remember the the history of this character I only vaguely remember to begin with. So, um. <laughs> well, let, let's face it. You know, I don't know if we mentioned it in this episode or the last one, but the Justice Society they have good villains, but they don't have you know like Superman or Batman level villains, right? So, Brainwave, and especially in the next issue, God, the villain they bring back, he looks 
He looks mentally handicapped is what he looks. But that, that's, that's just me being kind of completely and utterly insensitive. Um, I like Power Girl's entrance. Yes. Uh, I don't know what she is pushing to cap off the volcano. It looks like she's pushing lava into lava. I don't quite how that knows. It also it looks, looks like a giant tongue. Yeah. <laughs> With an arm on it, and it's screaming no. You can make of that what you will, folks. <laughs> Page 15. But she comes in, and she just, you know, it's like, whoa, one step at a time. We don't even know who your cousin is. Now, she's like, well, what? I- I'm sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you. I was just going to ask... On the next to last panel in the book, is she bouncing Hulk style? Next to the last. You know what? Actually, on on the last page, I just noticed this. And the in the second panel on the last page, and then in the fourth panel on the last yes, page, she she's is. bouncing. Yeah, because she can't fly yet. Ah. This was you know, Earth Two Superman until I think it was like the fifties or sixties. He was still. He could still only leap an eighth of a mile. So she is not as, she is not, her powers have not developed as much as Superman's has at this point. I thought Superman started to fly pretty, pretty quick. Yeah, I mean, I I didn't think it was really all that long before he went from the, from the leaping to the, to the actual, right, you know, all out flying. Was it really that late in his career? No, it wasn't. Here's the thing. This is something I, I didn't know when I was going to bring it up, but you kind of opened the door, so I'm going to walk through it. Uh-oh. A lot of people want to say that the Earth 2 Superman is the Golden Age Superman. And right. for all intents and purposes, he is. But he's really not. He, you know, because the history that they develop for him is taking the Golden Age history and adapting it for their own needs. Right. So... While Superman was flying a couple years after he came out, I don't know if it was on the radio show, I don't know if it was in the Fleischer cartoons, and then that was carried over to uh, the comics. I think it may have been the radio show. Um, the you know the fact that he you know here's a good example in the 40s he was working for the Daily Planet in the comics. Right, but on Earth Two in the '40s, he was still working for the Daily Star. Daily Star, right? So, while I, you know, I agree in principle that he is the Golden Age Superman, he, it's, it's kind of not. It's kind of like an honorary title put on another character, and right. it's not a criticism, mind you. It's just something that I've always had in my head when I think about these characters. Is that Earth Two is a creation? It's the first bit of retroactive continuity in comic books, right? Yeah, uh, that I that I can think of when you know because even you know DC really wasn't big about continuities even in the in the late fifties. So it's kind of weird that <laughs> that I'm thinking about it in those terms. But you know, here's a good example in the first appearance of the Flash, I mean, of the Golden Age Flash meeting the modern day Flash in Flash number one twenty three. You know, he says, I quit in 1951. Well, he didn't. Flash comics were continued to be published until 1953. So he's taking the end of the Justice Society as when everybody quit. Right. So that was a little bit of convenient uh, retcons. 
which I think is a term Roy Thomas came up with in the yes. last pages to All Star Squadron. Yes, if yes, I remember correctly. But mm-hmm. that doesn't diminish any of my feelings towards Earth Two or anything like that. It's just one of those odd thoughts I have, like you know, when I'm driving to work. <laughs> Or, as George Carlin used to say, these are the things I think about when I'm sitting at home and the power goes out. (laughs) Now, you know, as I sat down to read this, as I often do, and this is probably a terrible thing to admit, but anytime I sit down with an old comic like this, the first thought that goes through my head, no matter if uh, if I've read it before and, and, and remember loving it or whether I'm reading it for the first time, I always have just a slight amount of dread going, oh, God, this is going to be a commitment. And, you know, I was actually really surprised that this is a short read. I mean, this only silly pages. Yeah, it really, I mean, I I flew through reading this issue. So I was really surprised because, you know, usually you've kind of got to brace yourself with these older books. There's usually a hell of a lot of exposition, and it takes a while to read it. And it's funny to say that because that's a direct contradiction to my feeling about today's comics that, you know, you can read down and breeze through them and, uh, yeah, you can sit down and breeze through them in, like, five minutes. You know, so it's like, all right, which do you want, you know? But, but uh, yeah, I was really surprised that uh, that this was such a very fast read. But it was a good read, you know? It, it, no, was, it was a solid very, issue, and I really enjoyed it. The, the pacing was good. Uh, it brought you up to speed on the characters. This was meant to not only launch the concept of the Super Squad, which, you know, as we both agree, thank God, it didn't stick because uh but but it also is a meant to like hey the justice society have their own book again and look it's a modern take on the old concept we had the meeting in the beginning they all split up into teams but we're having it to be continued so you know in the next issue probably they're gonna all come together fight the big bad guy and have their uh what you and your co-host on Two True Freaks would call like the lighthearted Star Trek ending. Right. You know, where everyone's kind of laughing and having a good time. Not one of the <laughs> depressing ones where you, you just let a lot of people die or, you know, <laughs> Kirk once again decided to play God with a with a race of people, even though he shouldn't have. No, it's um, it's a fun book. And I think that is one of the things that is lacking today. You know, you said sometimes it's hard to read these older books. Yeah, it is. But at the same time, I'd rather sit down with a 17-page book that takes me 10 to 15 minutes to read than to sit down with five books that take me 15 minutes to read. Right, exactly, that you paid, you know, 10 times the amount for or whatever. Yeah, absolutely. You know, it's just... It's just more enjoyable, you know, for me to read a story I know that I'm going to like. And, you know, we, we've picked apart certain things. We're going to continue doing that. Um, but, you know, I I just, like you, it was a great read. I like the characters. Uh, and I, I kind of liked how things wrapped up as well. Mm-hmm. I wanted to touch on one last thing before we wrap up on this issue. Um you had uh, uh, said something earlier, and it got me to thinking. I-, I was picking at my brain this whole time. There was a vague memory I was trying to get at, and I finally put my finger on what it was. You were talking about Wildcat and his floppy ears and the whole look to him. And when you said that, and I'm looking at the, the first panel on page two, which is a great picture of him with the floppy ears, and somehow that like jogged a memory with me. I got to thinking, what, what was it about that? 
And I finally remembered what it was, was getting into this as a kid. And again, you know, to anybody listening, you've got to remember that when I read this stuff as a kid, I'm talking, you know, 30 plus years ago, or, you know, or thereabouts. And this was, you know, pre-internet and that sort of thing. No comic shops existed. You know, there, you couldn't go to your local library and, and find the trade paperback, you know, reprint collection or whatever. You know, so you only had what you had in front of you to go with. So when I started to get into Earth 2, and everybody seemed to have a parallel, you know, the first thing you want to do is you're, when you're a kid is, all right, you're trying to figure out who are the parallels. Now, we clearly have the Flash. We clearly have Green Lantern. Who are these other guys supposed to be the parallel of? All right, well, we've got Robin, so he's the parallel of Robin. So I remember looking at Wildcat as a kid who has a somewhat similar design as Batman, and I now remember as a kid for a while until he eventually would pop up wherever I first saw the the Earth to Batman – because remember, Batman and Superman were kind of scarce on Earth 2 in the beginning. Yeah. Um, I remember thinking that Wildcat was the Earth 2 Batman. And it wasn't until, I, I couldn't even tell you what book I eventually saw that, oh, wait, no, I guess he's not because there actually is an Earth 2 Batman. But I, I ju- that just occurred to me and I thought it was worth throwing out there because... You know, as we would eventually learn, not everybody did have a parallel, which was another one of those things that would kind of throw you a little bit. You know, that some characters had a parallel and then other ones just didn't. And that was, that, I always thought that was cool. And that, that may be another one of those things that lent into me liking this team and these characters so much because there were characters that were unique just to this earth. I, I like that. I think that's interesting. I thought that was a, a, an, inter- an interesting take that they didn't bother to, to duplicate everybody on both Earths. I feel bad for the kid that found this in like 1985, 1986, because you know they got like superpowers figures for Christmas or Easter or whatever or their birthday. It's like, hey, Doctor Fate's in this, but no one else looks the same. <laughs> <laughs> but I have a Dr. Fate figure, and he's hanging out with this Flash and this Green Lantern. I did have the Dr. Fate figure, by the way. Oh. I, I had a I had a pretty good superpowers collection that, sadly, I no longer have. <laughs> I had a few of them, t- too. That, that, was a great, uh, that was a great series of figures. I liked superpowers. Favorite DC action figure line ever. Uh, one final note. In the All-Star comments, which is the letters page, uh, surprisingly, there were a couple of letters, even though this was the first issue of the series, supposedly. But they come from two longtime JSA fans, uh, Roy Thomas, who at this point, I don't know if he was editor-in-chief of Marvel at this point, because they had like five in the 70s. But um, Roy Thomas uh, writes in and then talks about how he got that issue of All-Star and Western. <laughs> There is a, there's a rumor story, I don't know if I actually read it in an interview with him or if I read this somewhere else, that Roy Thomas was offered the chance to write this book, but because he was kind of exclusive to Marvel at the time, he couldn't. But uh, that would have been interesting to see him writing, because at this point he was writing The Invaders. Do you like The Invaders? You know, I've never read any of it. 
I couldn't. I couldn't get past who was the artist? Frank Robbins. I couldn't get past the Frank Robbins art on on a lot of those. Man, issues. Frank Robbins is a is a all or nothing type of artist. Either people love his work or people hate his work. <laughs> uh, and Jerry Bales, who is rightly called the father of comic book fandom, uh, because he was the one uh, back in the '60s that started putting together, you know, magazines like Alter Ego, which was an early fanzine that Roy Thomas eventually came on. But he he was a he was a very avid Justice Society fan. He was very active in fandom and, the, and getting fandom established in the '60s and '70s. He wrote the Who's Who in American comic books. Uh, but he writes in a letter as well, so it's kind of kind of nice that two of the old time fans got to write in about the about the new series. I, I wonder what they really think about the book. Now, well, I can't ask Jerry Bales because unfortunately he has passed away. I was just going to say I thought he was dead now. Yeah, unfortunately, uh, the letters page is in the middle of this book. That was kind of weird. Maybe we could uh, maybe we could actually hold out a hope of maybe nabbing uh, Roy Thomas at some point. I know he likes to do uh, podcast interviews. I'm hoping so, especially when we get to All Star Squadron. That would be cool. That would be very cool. Uh, but on the opposite page, and I know I know, I know uh, Scott's excited about this. We have <gasps> the Hostess ad. Hostess. Uh, for those of you not aware, in the '70s and '80s, uh, early '80s. Uh, Hostess was a big sponsor of comic books, and instead of just having like a picture of like you know the fruit pies or Twinkies or King Don's or whatever the hell the cupcakes are called, <laughs> uh, they would have one-page comic book strips, basically, uh, usually drawn by Kurt Swan because that man could crank artwork out like there's nobody's business, <laughs> uh, and usually they're attributed to being written by E. Nelson Bridwell, at least on the DC side, right. Uh, the Marvel ones are kind of racier. There's one uh, with Thor versus the Dingalings. That's my absolute favorite one of all time right there. That one to replace that, sir. Spider-Man spoils the snatch. <laughs> I'll just bet he does. <laughs> That's why he's my hero. But this one has Batman and the Captive Commissioner. <gasps> dun, dun, dun. Commissioner Gordon has been captured by the... Three Svengali brothers, underworld figures. Without its commissioner, Gotham City is in total chaos. <laughs> it is! People are like beating each other up on the street! <laughs> Robin, until Commissioner Gordon is free, the city is in trouble. Not just trouble, Batman. Real deep, big trouble. And then we cut to the Svengali brothers. You two guys got a mega the deal with the Batman. Either we run this town or noble every city of the commissioner again. And he's got this okay symbol going on. <laughs> like, le- like, how you doing? No, how you doing? <laughs> I like his shirt is unbuttoned all the way to his belly button, too. That's cool. We'll persuade the Batman <laughs> to talk things over. <laughs> Don't try nothing, Batman. This car is computerized to take you to a hideout, no matter what you do. In that case, let's enjoy some snacks. So Batman is apparently just carrying around Hostess Fruit Pies. <laughs> now, shouldn't they be called Bat fruit, uh, Hostess Fruit Pies at this point? Yeah. If they come from his utility belt, right? <laughs> hey, this is terrific. Hostess Fruit Pies. I'll take cherry. I'm sure you will. <laughs> Apple for me. <laughs> Batman, you're okay. This has real fruit fruit. <laughs> 
a tender crust you wouldn't believe. Glad you enjoyed the hostess fruit pies, and as everyone knows, a little nap after meals helps, so he punches them both in the face. That guy's driving the car, you stupid bastard. Now they're going to swerve and like run over like nuns crossing the street or something. I, th- I thought the computer was computer. Oh, that's right. They and probably had to add my- that because he punches them both in the face. Just totally spoiled my vision of, like, you know... All these that may be responsible get, for the death of yeah. <laughs> All these pedestrians getting mowed down as Batman dives for the brake pedal and, and the steering wheel. <laughs> Sweet Jesus. <laughs> so we cut to the dramatic conclusion. Um, okay, this is what I don't understand about this, pa- this panel, okay? We got in the front part of the panel, Robin punching the leader in the face. Them dumb brothers of mine let me down. Let me out of here. Uh, oh, oh, okay. He wasn't answering the door. I thought he was answering the door. I was very confused about that. Let's just say I had a little help from Hostess, and Commissioner Gordon's like, Batman, you've done it again, because I'm so inept <laughs> as a police commissioner that without me, people would be beating each other in the streets and riding. I mean, this is kind of like the New York blackout, just <laughs> in a microcosm. Now look at Robin right there. Look how scrawny Robin is. <laughs> I think maybe Batman should give Robin a few of those Hostess fruit pies. No, dude, no, no. Back when I was 20 years old, I was working at a, a convenience store. I had no money because uh, I had just lost my job, and this, and I just gotten another job. And I'm like, you know, these 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 fruit pies are only there are two for a dollar. I'll eat these, and I started gaining weight. I'm like, why did I gain weight? They're like 500 calories a piece. <laughs> Those things will make you fat in like a hurry. They're good, especially mm-hmm. if you microwave them. But yes, you'll get a big delight in every bite of Hostess fruit pies. And now I'm worried that some kid is like scared that the next time he eats a fruit pie, Batman's just going to come and punch him in the face. <laughs> Oh my God! Well, well, let's see. What are some of the? There's some other classic ads in here too. So you got the Daisy Air Rifle ad on the the inside cover. Had a lot of BB gun ads in comic books back in the day. I wonder if there's a lot of one-eyed, like forty-year-old and fifty-year-old guys out there today. (laughs) You'll shoot your eye out. I like the the shrunken head apple sculpture ad with uh, with Vincent Price because I remember those commercials on TV when I was a kid and they were spooky, and those damn apples came out looking not a goddamn thing like they do in this ad either, not a thing like it. I will say this: I had a teacher that kind of looked uh, looked like <laughs> that that apple on the top there. <laughs> Uh, once, uh, complete with like the missing teeth. So that's kind of creepy. Why she had a chain coming out of her skull, I have no idea. But I'm going to let you totally have the one on the opposite page. Oh, thank you, sir. It is for the Steve, Colonel Steve Austin, the $6 million man action figure. And I had everything that was that is on this page. I had the Steve Austin with the powerful bionic arm where he could, uh, you could see through the back of his head and his bionic eye. He had an engine block that you could have him lift with his bionic arm, a radio backpack that was a real working uh, AM radio, and I even had the bionic transport and repair center that doubled as like his rocket ship. Steve Austin, the $6 million man, was freaking cool back in the day. I loved it, man. 
There were even uh, there were some comics for a short while through Charlton, but none of them were really all that spectacular. Great covers on them, though. Especially there was a magazine that uh, I think Charlton put out the magazine as well. It was a black and white magazine, somewhat similar to uh, the Marvel black and white oversized mm-hmm. magazine, you know, like Tomb of Dracula and stuff like that. And uh, those had covers on them by um, Neil Adams. And, oh, my God, were they gorgeous, gorgeous art. But we also have an ad, and I'd like to have every single one of these, for the oversized treasury size. Yes. Uh, We're not going to go too much into that. I just wanted to mention it real quick. I'll mention the one that pertains uh, to this issue, because the next issue, oh, there's an awesome one. But they have a DC Super Special Holiday Treat. (laughs) Because you have uh, Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, which is one of the rare times Rudolph has been in comics. But you also have Christmas with the Superheroes. And looking at that cover, I'm getting the sense that there's a lot of Golden Age stories in this book. Probably, yeah. Because you have the second edition of Sandman and and Sandy uh, in the Sandman costume I hate. Uh, I like the suit and the cape. And the, uh, and the gas mask. Gas mask, yeah. You know who would make a great Wesley Dodds? The dude who played the brother on Frasier. Oh, yeah, you're David. right, yeah. Oh, I'd love to see that. But it's got it's got Superman, Santa Claus, and Batman. And, we're and Captain almost... Marvel Jr., one of my favorite superheroes. You like Captain Jr.? You, you yeah. like Captain Marvel Jr.? Very I good. I do. The only superhero that can't say his own name. <laughs> uh, my favorite ad, I know you love the Bionic Man, but you have fond memories of that. This, I looked at the first time, and it's Big Jim's Pack. <laughs> Big Jim <laughs> searched the world for a crack team of specialists to protect freedom and fight crime. He found three tough, menacing men of action. To, vo- to form Big Jim's Pack, because nothing can stop the smashing assault of Big Jim's Pack. Pack, by the way, stands for profession- Professional Agents Crime Killers. What four-year-old did they outsource that to? <laughs> i just like to say Big Jim's Pack. <laughs> Big Jim's Six Pack, or Big Jim's <laughs> Package. You have Warpath. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> Every time you say it, you just laugh. Uh, you have Warpath, the silent stalker. He aims his silver bow and fires stunner arrows. He also sends coded messages to all pack members. Dear pack members, quitting, joining my He sends a by smoke signal. <laughs> Dr. Steel, the enforcer. He's the mysterious smog- strong man with the gleaming steel hand and that strange tattoo. And he- this is what he says. My deadly steel hand will make sure the last thing they see is my dragon tattoo. What is he doing with that person? <laughs> what is... Oh, God. Is, is it because he has a mirror in front of his bed? I mean, <laughs> that would be terrible. Uh, the Whip. Weapon specialist with his bullwhip, bolo, boomerangs, and shanai stick. He's fully armed to take on any and all danger. He looks like a longshoreman. Uh, oh... <laughs> I'll whip them into shape before they can count the boomerangs in my bandolier. <laughs> and then there's Jim, Big Jim. He's the brain sponge. Because obviously these guys are morons. <laughs> He's the brains behind this explosive outfit. His wrist radio communicator calls pack alerts. And the quick draw sidearm keeps trouble at bay. Pack members, I can't promise anyone will come out of this mission alive. <laughs> That's what I want to hear from my leader. <laughs> 
You dumbasses have... will probably die on this mission. I have a friend, my friend Garrett. Uh, hey, Garrett. I know he's listening. Um, he has some of his Big Jim Pack figures from when he was a kid. Oh, wow. Because he's about your age. So he, uh, yeah, he, he told me he had. So I, I'd love for him to dig those out because I'd like to see what they look like if they were pieces of crap or actually like Mego-sized figures. I just, I, I like the part where about the wrist radio communicator. I just envision like Dick Tracy walking up and slapping the shit out of him and taking his wristwatch back. Give me that, <laughs> ass clown. <laughs> You know what? This isn't Jim? a toy, you know. All of my friends came back from the mission alive. <laughs> How do you feel about that, huh, punk? <laughs> oh my God! Uh, what else have we got in this one? We got to add one for. Uh, oh, go ahead. One final ad I'd like to talk about is at the on the opposite of page fifteen. Uh, there's a, a half page ad that says it's Superman's birthday, and you can celebrate with us at the Super DC Convention, a super celebration. A gathering of all that's great in DC Comics, which in 1975, there was a lot of good in DC Comics. Mm-hmm. Um, meet your favorite superheroes, watch as a comic is created before your eyes. Hours of movies and cartoons starring the DC superstars. Here's the thing. Um, this was a time when you would go to a convention, and that was the only place you could see like the 1941 Shazam movie series. Right. Or, you know, like the Fleischer cartoons, because they weren't aired on television all that regularly. So that's when... I never saw them on TV. The first time I ever saw the Fleischer cartoons was in a ground-round restaurant. They were playing them (laughs) as part of the cartoons that they they were showing. And it blew my mind, because I had seen them in the back of one of those... uh, you know, those giant oversized limited collector's editions. There's one of them that actually has pictures from a Fleischer cartoon in it. And so when I saw those, I was probably, I don't know, 13, 14 years old, eating out somewhere with uh, one of my aunts, I think it was, at a ground round restaurant. And they showed that. I was like, oh, that's so Superman cartoons. You know, it was like, it was like you know, a, a legend I'd heard suddenly came true. You know, it was really cool. That is, that is something that, uh, that I kind of miss. I kind of miss how special things used to be. Mm-hmm. And now you can just go to freaking YouTube and watch episodes of like the Shazam series from 1974. Yep. Whereas I have only seen two on TV land. And you know, but the, the thing about this ad that gets me, you know, you think, okay, Mike, you're talking about it because it's Superman. No, Super DC Con 76 and the Hotel Commodore took place on February 27th, 28th, and 29th of 1976. And I was born on February 29th, 1976. <laughs> Which is Superman's birthday. So I'd like to think that I was kind of a predestined Superman fan. That's cool. That's very cool. Yeah, I, I, I saw that. The first time I saw that, when I read this for the first time back in 97, I smiled. I'm like, aw. <laughs> well, right, at, right above that is uh, is a Slim Jim uh, <laughs> smoked beef snacks ad, which give me heartburn. So I like to think that I was predestined to have heartburn, but that's neither here nor there. <laughs> Um, on the opposite page, they have ads for a subscription to Amazing World of DC Comics. I have that issue, by the way. That's a Carmine Infantino cover. I love that cover on that with uh, Adam Strange. And I don't know if that's – I think that's Grodd because I think they actually added a, a, a word balloon to that cover. And I think the uh, – whoever that's supposed to be sitting there at the table, I think he's saying something like, show some respect, Grodd, put down the banana or something to that yeah. effect on the, on the cover of that. 
what other ads do we have in this? And that's pretty much it for. In- oh wait, no, no, <gasps> I forgot the. I was the, about to the say granddaddy of them all. All right, you just weren't a comic book in the 1970s. You just were not a comic book in the 1970s unless on your back cover you had evil frickin' Knievel. <laughs> this has evil Knievel. He's jumping over his stunt van. I actually had the stunt van. I never had anything else, but I had evil Knievel. I had his motorcycle and I had his stunt van. But it showed all this other cool shit that I don't know what country you had to live in to find all these other awesome accessories because I never saw any of them in the store. But, you know, man, he had, like, a rescue set, an Arctic set, explorer set, racing set. Now, I was always under the impression that all Evil Knievel did was jump over motors, you know, jump over cars, drink, and whore himself out to all, all kinds of strange women. But this shows him as, like, you know, he was like G.I. Joe, man. He was everywhere. He was rescuing people and going to the Arctic and stuff. Do, do you think Colonel Steve Austin ever walked up to him and just smacked the hell out of him? Not like, to Evil what? Knievel, man. Evil Knievel would break Steve Austin into, uh, I'm, I'm pretty convinced. Well, no, then again, though. He's the bionic man. Yeah, but this is Evil Knievel we're talking about here. <laughs> well, it's true. If he broke his arm, he'd just shoot you on a few more Percocets <laughs> and get on with the but, fight. But then, see, after the whole thing with, with Caesar's Palace and the fountain accident and all that, you know, after that, you know, then... Evil Knievel walked more robotically than the six million dollar man ever would. So, see, this is another thing where I'm just like, Evil Knievel, what's the big fucking deal? Oh man, you see, I'm sorry, you had to have lived back then because Evil Knievel was the shit, man. Him and the human fly. Ah, the human fly was a puss, but Evil Knievel, he was the shit. You have been listening to Tales of the Justice Society of America, hosted by Scott Gardner and Michael Bailey. You can email the show at talesofthejsa, that's all one word, at gmail.com. You can also find the home of the show at two places. One is fortressofbaileytude.com. And you may also find the show at twotruefreaks.libson.com. Scott has two other podcasts that he would like you to listen to. One is Two True Freaks, which you can find at that same web address that he co-hosts with his childhood friend and former bodyguard for Farrah Fawcett, Chris Honeywell. He is also the host of Back to the Bins, which has a rotating co-host chair made up of podcasting and comic book fandom's finest. You can also find that at the twotruefreaks.lipson.com. Michael also has two other shows that he produces. The first is Views from the Long Box, which can be found at www.viewsfromthelongbox, all one word, dot com. And also From Crisis to Crisis, a Superman podcast, which he co-hosts with Jeffrey Taylor. You can find that at both www.supermanhomepage.com and fortressofbaileytude.com. Thank you for listening, and we will see you next week for more tales of the Justice Society of America. 